sorrow and dead in my sin. Lost without hope with no place to begin. So today we continue on in our sermon series. Uh, we're calling it A Tale of Two Cities. Kind of um, just trying to understand the relationship of the church and the world. How, how do we understand our role in the world? How are we to live? Who are we to be? And so we're going to look throughout this series at, at some of the Apostle Paul's letters. And, and Paul's writing to specific communities, right? In, in first century the Roman territories, uh, these places where there were early churches that had taken root. Uh, and, and throughout each one of these, these cities, uh, there are different things going on. But there are some common themes as well. And I, there's so much that we can take from it. There, there are so many similarities between what's going on in, first, in the first century and, and what we experience today. So we're going to look at some of that. But today, we're going to look at the city of Corinth. So I'm going to read from uh, Paul's first letter to the Corinthian church. And I'm going to read a, a, a bit from chapter 1 and a bit from chapter 12. But hear these words and hear what's going on in, in the Corinthian community. Paul says this, I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you ag agree with one another in what you say, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you may, may be perfectly united in mind and thought. My brothers and sisters, some from Chloe's household have informed me that there are quarrels among you. What I mean is this. One of you says, I follow Paul. Another, I follow Apollos. Another, I follow Cephas. Still another, I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Were you baptized in the name of, in the name of Paul? I thank God that I did not baptize any of you except Crispus and Gaius. So none, none of one, no one can say that you were baptized in my name. Yes, I also baptized the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I don't remember if I baptized anyone else. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with wisdom and eloquence, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. From chapter 12, Paul is unpacking who they are truly to be, he says this. Just as a body, though one, has many parts, but all its many parts form one body, so it is with Christ. For we were all baptized by one Spirit so as to form one body, whether Jew or Gentile, slave or free, and we were all given the one Spirit to drink. Even so, the body is not made up of one part, but of many. Will you pray with me? Lord God, we give you thanks for your scriptures. We give you thanks for the ways that you speak to us through your Apostle Paul. God, speak to us today. Help us to see rightly. Help us to, to know you more. Help us to love you more and love each other and the world around us more. Transform us. Make us new. All of this we pray in Jesus' holy name. Amen. Amen. It was the best of times. It was the worst of times. It was the time of wisdom and foolishness, belief and unbelief, light and darkness, hope and despair, heaven and hell. When we talked about Charles Dickens' novel, The Tale of Two Cities, uh, where he's describing a very tumultuous time in, in a world 
just filled with with just war and and the the thought of war, the threats of war during uh, the times leading up to and during the French Revolution. But in our sermon series by the same name, we're looking at our world today and and we see much the same. We see the same tumultuousness. So how do we live faithfully as Jesus followers? As the church in the midst of this tumultuous time. That's what we're seeking to uncover through this series by looking at Scripture and at some of what the early first century was experiencing of the world and how they responded. So we're looking at what was going on in in four of the Apostle Paul's letters. um, And these letters written specifically to some Christian communities and in these Roman-controlled cities that they found themselves in. But I don't know if you've gotten a sense of this, but the last several months, you know, it's going on six, six months, I think, um, the last several months of pandemic, of quarantine, of injustice, of unrest, and general fear and anxiety is forcing the church, is forcing us to search our collective heart and get serious about following Jesus. It's become painfully obvious that we cannot play church anymore. That we we have something to say to the world. And we have a responsibility to live out our faith. As we talked about last week, we, we are called to be yeast. We are called to be leaven in the world, giving it life and transforming it from the, from the inside out. All of this in the name of Jesus, empowered by the Holy Spirit. You know, I, I, I attended a, an Anglican church when I was in Kentucky in seminary. Um, and, and there's a, a, a blessing at the end of the service that the priest often gave. Uh, but he, he would say, you know, the world goes not well. And the rest of the congregation would, would, would respond, the world goes not well. But he said, but the kingdom comes. The rest of the congregation would respond in, in kind. The kingdom comes. The world goes not well, but the kingdom comes. And it is that hope that we are to proclaim with our mouths and with our lives. But how? right? How is the question. Well, like yeast that is to be added to dough to make bread... We have to first be, you know, activated. We, we have to go undergo a transformation. We must be given and must receive the empowering and enabling life of Jesus. You know, I, I think this entails having our minds, having our hearts and lives transformed into the likeness of Jesus. This is a discipleship issue. So last week, We talked about how we as followers of Jesus are to understand and use our God-given freedom. You know, it's a freedom to choose the way of Jesus or not. To choose to love God and love our neighbors or not. It's the freedom to choose to live our lives oriented to our proper end in Jesus. And to choose anything that does not lead us to become more like Jesus, in effect, enslaves us. We are free only to the degree that we follow the life and way of Jesus. This is how we as Christians understand freedom. So we have to see that our identity, 
is primarily, ultimately, first and foremost, before all else, found in Jesus Christ. Today we're going to explore some of the implications of this as we seek to be activated as leavening agents in the world. And today we're going to look at the city of Corinth as we find it in Paul's letter, his first letter to the Corinthian church there. But in his first letter, he offers some really harsh criticism for what the church community had become. They had forgotten their identity. They had lost their identity. There were all kinds of divisions. They, they had reverted, many of them had reverted back to their old ways and had created splits between various groups of people. There were splits between Jew and Gentile. There were splits between poor and wealthy And part of what played into this was the nature of the city itself. See, Corinth was located in Greece, just inland inland from what were the Ionian and Aegean seas. But because of where it was located, near these two seas, there were two ports there. And this is important to, to know, just know, to know the makeup of the city of Corinth. But it was was an area that was conquered and reestablished by the Roman Empire. And as a Roman colony, it it gained prominence in the region. And because of its two ports, it, it was of great strategic importance to the Roman Empire, both militarily and commercially. But because of this, Corinth became one of the wealthiest and most populous and and prominent cities in Greece. But with all the wealth came all the pride and all of the vice for which it was known. You know, Corinth was just had this notorious reputation. But in Corinth, as Paul talks about, lewd and immoral behavior was not only allowed, but it was even given religious backing through the worship of the pagan goddess Venus. You know, all, where all of this behavior was given license and celebrated. So, you know, that's why Paul talks about all of the, the drunkenness and prostitution and fornication and idolatry that was just running rampant. You know, I, I liken Corinth to Vegas, you know. What, what, what happens in Corinth, right? We know the rest. But it was into this setting that the gospel of Jesus Christ was proclaimed by Paul. And you could imagine how groundbreaking and revolutionary it was, and, and maybe how off the wall it seemed. But not long after receiving the message of Jesus, the church there started falling back into the trappings of wealth and pride and vice. And this created disunity. It created divisions within the church community itself. So one of the specific issues that Paul addresses with the Corinthian people has to do with the way that they were treating the Lord's Supper. You see, the community, they would, they would gather together at the end of the day to celebrate the Lord's Supper, but because the wealthy did not work a full day, or at all, they would get there early, and they would drink up all the wine. You know, getting drunk. And the less wealthy, or the working poor, would show up after a long, hard day of work, often late, and they'd find that all the wine was gone and everyone else was just three sheets to the wind. This created resentment, division. 
And this became an, an issue of, of justice, right? Because of the, the disparity between rich and poor. And this was within the church amongst professing followers of Jesus. People who had been baptized. There were divisions between rich and poor. There were also divisions over who followed who. Some said they followed the teachings of Peter. Some said the the teachings of Apollos. Some said the teachings of Paul. While others followed the teaching of Jesus. It was into this mess that Paul chimes in and he essentially says, thank God I didn't baptize any of you mess, right? Just a mess. Thank God I did not baptize any of you. I think about all that's going on in Corinth and I think about chapter 13 in 1 Corinthians. You know, chapter 13, the great love chapter. Love is patient, it's kind, bears all things, hopes all things, etc., and we usually hear that, that passage read at weddings, right? Um, and it, when we hear it read, we just think, oh, it's so nice. It's so sweet. You know, new love blossoming in the air. And it makes us feel warm and kind of fuzzy and maybe even hopeful. Paul didn't write that for us to read like one time or hear one time in our life uh, at a wedding. Had nothing to do with weddings. In reality, Paul is writing these words to a bunch of knuckle-headed idiots who were messing everything up. They were getting it wrong. They were making a mockery of the gospel, using any excuse to create division and put down and subjugate the other, whoever that other might be. They had forgotten who they were. They had gotten, they, they had forgotten that they had rejected their old ways. They had forgotten that they had walked away from their old life. And they had forgotten the life of Christ that they had taken on in their baptism. They had lost their identity. So Paul spends a lot of his time reminding them who they are and where their identity is to be found. In essence, he says, they are Christ's. Their identity primarily, ultimately, first and foremost, before all things, is found in Jesus Christ. And they are marked by this reality by their baptism. That they are baptized in the one Spirit, into the one body of Christ. Well, some things, as they say, never change. You know, So it goes in Corinth. As it goes in Corinth, so it goes today. And we know as followers of Jesus that the human condition is universal across all time, all places. And I, I can't help but think that despite all of the progress, we talk a lot about progress, well, despite all of the progress that, that human beings have made throughout their existence, we've failed to progress much morally. Right? And so the same brokenness, the same division we see in Corinth is much the same that we see today. Even within the church. So we could spend the rest of the day enumerating all of the ways that this is, this is so. But, but I want to focus on one particular area. Because it's so pervasive. Uh, because it's so in front of our faces right now. And because it's so important that we get right 
Because it has everything to do with our identity as individuals and as a church. So I have to be honest. I, I have been trying to prepare myself for months now, mentally and emotionally, for the political charade that is and will be unfolding you know, over the next two months. You know, we, we see, it's been going, but we see the rhetoric picking up and, and with it the divisiveness and, and just mean-spirited antagonism, even hatred. Uh, we see violence even. And so now it's become all about creating an us and a them, right? This is what we see in the political system. And, and I was reminded of this as I was, I watched the, the Chiefs game and they're, they're, I was watching on the antenna and I, I, don't, it, I was shocked because I saw a commercial, like, whoa, a local commercial. And it, it was a, a political ad, right? It, these political ads, they're, they're going full steam. And they're all the same, right? There's, there's this black and white screen and then this picture of a particular candidate. And have you ever noticed that it's the absolute worst picture of that candidate possible, right? Horrible picture with this terrible face, mangled face. And then this deep menacing voice talking about how so-and-so is the worst human being in the world and how they've single-handedly are responsible for world hunger and the, the decimation of the rainforest and they probably even hate puppies. And at the end, you know, at the end, it, it switches. It, it, it changes to this bright, vivid color with rainbows and butterflies. And, and another person appears on the screen saying that they are so-and-so and they approve of this message. There's nothing of substance. Usually nothing positive at all. But we see in that a, a way of simply manipulating people. Manipulating us into having an emotional reaction. Right? That's all it's there for. To create an emotional reaction so that we will be forced into one of two camps. Make your choice. Either or. But as horrific as they are, political ads and the divisive and demeaning rhetoric of this election cycle, they're not really what bother me. You know, we can easily set those aside, ignore them, not watch local news channels. What does bother me, and should bother all of us, is that that same rhetoric, the same divisiveness, the same manipulation, the same hatred even, the same slander, name-calling, demeaning, and dehumanizing is being done by professing baptized followers of Jesus. That bothers me. That should bother all of us. And it's troubling to me that the, the liberal, conservative, Republican, Democrat divisiveness is the air that we breathe. Not just out in the world, but within the church as well. Amongst professing followers of Jesus. You know, I think as followers of Jesus, who happen to be American, we happen to, be, to have been born in this great country, I think we're having an identity crisis. In many ways, we have forgotten who God is. We have forgotten who we are. 
And we have forgotten who we were created to be. We've forgotten where our, our, our identity lies primarily, ultimately, first and foremost, before all else. And as Paul says to the Corinthians, you know, he says that they're not baptized into the way of Peter or Paul or Apollos. We are not baptized into the Republican Party, into the Democrat Party, in, into conservatism or liberalism. We are not baptized in the name of capitalism or socialism or communism. We are baptized in the name and into the way of Jesus Christ. You, know, you can be a Christian and be liberal or conservative, Republican or Democrat, but for the sake of Christ and the truth of His Gospel, first be a Christian. This is our identity. It's an identity ratified in our baptism. I think we have to live out our baptismal vows. That's part of how we're yeast and leaven in this world. Living out this life that we have taken on. You know, we've rejected the old life. We've taken on a new life. I think about how a lot, many in the early church, and I've shared this before, many in the early church, how they experienced baptism. And, and, and for them, it, it really was rejecting an entire order, right? They were rejecting all of the pagan gods. They would turn to the West, which is where many of the pagan gods were believed to, you know, rise from, come from. They would turn to the West and they would reject those evil powers, those, those pagan gods, they would even spit. And then they would turn to the east, face the east. They would enter into the waters naked. Good thing we don't do that today, right? They would enter into the waters, they would emerge from the waters, and then they would be robed in a white robe, clothed in the purity of Christ. They rejected all that came before, and they took on this new life in Christ. It's no different for us when we are baptized. And in the Methodist tradition, and, and it carries on, you know, the Anglicans goes back a ways, it's a long tradition. We, we have vows that we, we commit to. Um, you know, if, if we're baptized as an infant, we later commit to these same vows. But we talk about, you know, we, we talk about accepting the freedom that God gives us to reject evil, injustice, and oppression in whatever forms they present themselves. We talk about rejecting the evil powers of this world and repenting of our own sin. We talk about professing Jesus as our Lord and Savior, putting our whole trust in His grace and promising to serve Him as our Lord in union with the church, which Christ is open to all nations, races, peoples. We have to live into in and live out our baptismal vows. You know, the first Tuesday after the first Monday of November is a big day. Um, and every four years, it seems to get bigger and bigger. We're going to be, many of us, voting in one of the most divisive and polarizing elections in recent American history. And there's so much anxiety. So much anxiety. So much fear surrounding this election. You know, I, I say this every four years. This is the worst I've ever seen. Right? 
It doesn't get any better. Over the next couple of months, we have the obligation to live differently. You know, I I decided to do this sermon series now because I think what we're really talking about is a discipleship issue. It's about becoming more like Jesus, having the Holy Spirit work on us. And that takes time. We can't just wait until the day before the election to start talking about these things. We have to be different people. To live differently. To be leavened. You know, what is less important is how we vote. Who we vote for. It's important. It's important that we vote. But it's less important. What is more important is how we live before, during, and after we vote. So we have to hear Paul's message as he points us to Jesus. That our identity primarily, ultimately, first and foremost, before anything else, lies in Jesus. The Jesus who died to conquer sin and death. To free us from the trappings of division and sin. Who is at work to redeem all of creation. And who empowers us, the church, to be leavened. To be builders of His kingdom here on earth as in heaven. And how do we do this? Well, Paul answers the how of the Corinthian brokenness in chapter 13. Through self-giving, self-emptying, self-sacrificing love. That's the love of Jesus Christ. The love that created everything that is you and me. The love that gave Himself for you and me. That we might have life. And I think within all of that, we must learn to be able to disagree, even within the church. We have to learn to be able to disagree and yet still be brothers and sisters committed to a life of loving God, loving each other, and loving our neighbors around us. You know, I think about John Wesley, the founder of the Methodist movement, and he, he was known for being very pragmatic, very practical in his, in his teaching. And he gave some instructions. And I, I love him. He gave some instructions for how those early Methodists were to vote. I'd like to read what he said. He says this, I met with those of our society who had votes in the ensuing election and advised them to, one, to vote without fee or reward for the person they judge most worthy, Two, to speak no evil of the person they voted against. And three, to take care their spirits were not sharpened against those that voted on the other side. Didn't tell them who to vote for. Didn't tell them how to vote. Told them who they were to be. Right? What does it mean to follow Jesus even in the midst of a tumultuous time? I used to like to paraphrase Wesley as saying, Basically, vote your conscience, but don't be a jerk. Right? But I think there's a better way. I've come to think that there's, there's even a better way of putting it. I, I think it should be, vote your conscience and love like Jesus. Friends, our calling is so much higher than divisiveness, than hate, We are called to the life and way of Jesus. In Him is the fullness of our identity. Primarily, ultimately, first and foremost, before anything else. 
And we dwell in the hope that we have as Jesus followers. Because the world goes not well. And most likely will continue to go not well. But the kingdom comes. Amen. Sorrow and dead in my sin, lost without hope, with no place to begin. Your love made a way to let mercy come in when death was arrested and my life began. Ash was redeemed, only beauty remains. My orphan heart was given a name. Song of all the redeemed. 
Jesus, we're free, free forever, amen. When death was arrested, my life began. When death was arrested, my life began. When death was arrested, and my life began.